victims from the battle, including bullets and ID tags. In this second part of our look at that battle 75 years ago, Philip tells me about the pillboxes that still stand that were the scenes of intense battles between the invading Japanese and the defence forces, which included young Canadians and local volunteers. One of them was Sergeant Tom Marsh of the Winnipeg Grenadiers, who wrote a diary of his experiences. At Wong Nai Chung, we left the trucks, which were shortly afterwards destroyed by mortar fire and awaited further orders. They soon came. Lieutenant Burkett returned to the platoon with a member of the Hong Kong Volunteers, who was to act as our guide. We were ordered to occupy a small fort or pillbox called Jardine's Lookout, about a mile away. With Lieutenant Burkett, who had a map and the volunteers in the lead, the men picked up their loads and followed. We were strung out over some distance and had difficulty keeping in touch as it was very dark. I brought up the rear to encourage the stragglers. The men cursed and sweated under their heavy loads as we left the main road and took a side path that wound over and along the foothills. Although we were unaware of it, we were walking right into the Japanese. They had already infiltrated up to and past our destination. Rifle and gunfire was all around, and we could hear the peculiar cries of the enemy as they sought to make their positions known to each other. We could not see them, however, and fortunately they could not see us. Our leaders must have avoided the enemy patrols. We came to a pillbox occupied by a detail of the Hong Kong volunteers. They were very glad to see us, but were disappointed when Lieutenant Burkett said that he had his orders to go to Jardine's lookout, and to Jardine's lookout he would go. He did not say so, but he had a date with destiny, and he was going to keep it. Well, we're walking beside a water catchment. It's about three foot deep or so. The Japanese used this water and um, water catchment to creep up to the pillboxes. A number of them were uh, killed as they got close to the pillboxes because the defenders of the pillboxes came out and used um, submachine guns and grenades to attack the Japanese. So, you know, things haven't changed that much. There's a deep gully behind us. Uh, carved out of the rock face where the water catchment sort of flows and um, although I actually haven't seen the newspaper article um, apparently the South China Morning Post after the war in the letters page there's some complaint about skeletons being left in this gully because the bodies, some of the dead bodies from the battery were just thrown down into the gully and they remained there throughout the war so none of these trees would have been here um, in 1941, the vegetation would have so been... So this had all been bare? It would be bare. Um, what, people had used it to burn wood? Correct. I mean, like, um, back in 1941, not that many people, especially amongst... Well, I mean, in the Chinese population, not that many people would have um, access to electricity. So cooking was done by chatties, and they used... By? Wood, uh, little chatties, little kind of stoves, little, um, little uh, cooking devices... And they used wood, firewood. Trees were chopped down for firewood. They used charcoal. So around the Hong Kong hills, you see a lot of uh, charcoal burning pits. So charcoal, wood, and even grass. Um, grass cutters would cut the long grass on the hills, mat them up, tie them up, dry them, and they'd be used as a rather smoky fuel for cooking your rice. You know, it's a hard place to come down and fight. The whole of this area was defended. So you had um, Jardine's Lookout. You had a, uh, you had the two pillboxes. Um, you had the the batteries. You had defences around Wong Nai Chung Gap. It's um, you know, it's it's for for a lot of the troops, it was difficult deploying in this area because they were deploying at night. There's an amazing diary written by a chap called Tom Marsh, who was a sergeant in HQ Company, Winnipeg Grenadiers. 
And he describes in his diary how um, they were sent out on the night of the 18th, 19th, the night the Japanese landed. They were sent out in two trucks. Um, they drove to West Brigade headquarters, then up the steep road to Stanley Gap, and they debussed where we met this morning. Um, and uh, they were then given a volunteer, Hong Kong Volunteer Defence Corps guide, and the guide would have taken them along the track that we're now walking on. They would have taken, he would have taken them to the um, two pillboxes, they would have checked in at the pillboxes, and then they would have proceeded up the hill to Jardine's Lookout, which is where they were meant to be deploying to. But it was so dark, and they were carrying heavy loads, they couldn't actually make it up the hill. Um, uh, you know, the undergrowth was too thick, they couldn't see where they were going. So they came back to the pillboxes, and then they went up there the next morning. And by the time they got to the top of Jardine's Lookout, the Japanese were coming up the other side. They were coming up the north side. They met at the top, there was a furious battle. Um, it lasted for many hours until the Canadians were shot and blasted off that hilltop. Uh, virtually all of them were killed. Five made it back down the hill to one of the pillboxes. Sergeant Tom Marsh was badly wounded. He'd been shot in the head, um, uh, had an arm broken from um, an artillery shell um, concussion and, and was wounded elsewhere. He had at least three wounds. And he was unconscious, lying in a trench, when the Japanese came through the position bayonetting and he wounded. They must have looked at him and thought he was convincingly dead um, because he didn't receive the bayonet. But he had been shot in the head, so he had, he had no doubt had blood all over him. In the evening, as night came on, he came to and he made his way down towards the two pillboxes, which we're coming up to in a minute. And by this time, the two pillboxes had been overrun. Um, and there was a Japanese sentry outside with his rifle and bayonet. And I don't know who was more shocked, um, Sergeant Marsh or the Japanese sentry. Um, but anyway, he held the Japanese sentry, held Sergeant Marsh at um, bayonet point, yelled for his um, colleagues to come out of the pillbox, took Sergeant Marsh into the pillbox. There they squatted in the probably in the light of a hurricane light. Um, the Japanese looked pretty nervous. Um, in fact, Sergeant Marsh describes them as frothing at the mouth, as if they were taking some kind of drugs. Heavy shells were raining down all around the pillboxes, um, and the Japanese soldiers had to decide, what do we do with this prisoner? Should we just kill him? Um, and anyway, fortuitously, they decided to spare his life, and they wanted to get out of this area. So they took him away from the pillbox and down to the kind of area where the Japanese were congregating at Stanley Gap. And Sergeant Marsh was put into the mess hut that we went to, um, shot, bleeding, no food, no water, no medication, no sanitation. Um, but he went in there on Saturday morning, whereas the others had been, many of the others had been there over, over, over Friday night as well. And Sergeant Marsh endured the death march from, uh, from the, the mess hut to North Point. Um, and he survived the incarceration and made it home. And um, I'm in contact with his son, Vic Marsh. Um, and I'm also in contact with the sons of two of the drivers who brought um, Lieutenant Burkett's platoon, and S Sergeant Marsh was a platoon sergeant, from their HQ at Wan Chai Gap to Stanley Gap. So kind of, you know, I find those kind of personal stories so fascinating. Well, we've walked along the water catchment area a little bit and uh, a little bit away from some of the construction noise going on there and we've come uh, to quite an opening. 
Yep, we're now um, we're now looking south. We're looking towards Brook Hill in front of us, which is now known by people in Hong Kong for Ocean Park. Um, but in 1941, there was um, an anti-aircraft battery, 3.7-inch anti-aircraft battery, out on the headland, commanded by a young Royal Artillery Lieutenant, Lieutenant Gordon Fairclough. And his gun position was overrun on the 25th of December, on Christmas Day, early in the morning. And... As the Japanese attacked the guns, they lowered the guns from their normal vertical position to horizontal and used them almost like an infantry weapon, firing at point-blank range with the um, shells set to explode almost as soon as they left the barrel. Um, His um, co-British officer, uh, Captain Bartram, um, was um, killed. He went forward, apparently, with uh, grenades and a submachine gun and was killed. Um, Lieutenant Gordon Fairclough standing at the end of that peninsula that we're looking at now, um, was uh, shot through the chest, the body entering his chest and uh, coming out his back. And it knocked him down the hillside, down that steep hillside, and um, he was knocked unconscious. And then um, when he came to, he turned his head and looked up the hillside and found himself looking in the eyes of a Japanese sentry who promptly lifted his rifle and fired again. But he missed but he must have hit his shoulder um, pips or something like that because it moved him a bit. The sentry didn't fire again, assumed he was dead. And then as night came on, Gordon Fairclough went down that slope, found a cave. I've even taken a sandpan and found some of the caves um, where he hid out and um, he survived the war. Um, But what's amazing, having been shot through the chest, he... By February 1942, he'd escaped from Sham Shi Po, prisoner of war camp, made his way to Free China and back into the war effort. This is the extraordinary story of some of these as well, you know, that, that um, those that managed to survive the onslaught on, on Hong Kong, which ended with the surrender of Hong Kong on December the 25th, 1941, they're then incarcerated uh, for three years and eight months, um, some in Sham Shou Po, which was more for, for military, then you have the civilians who go down to Stanley, but uh, among other camps here. Now, you know, so three years and eight months of that, but those, as you say, that did escape, they would then be, um, some were flown uh, over to India and, and then made their way back. And there are, I mean, there's some extraordinary stories of people who fought here and then were fighting in northern France. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Or um, fighting with the Navy elsewhere. Um, uh, you know, quite a number escaped. It was difficult to escape from Hong Kong, so you can't really, if you're a, um, a British soldier, you can't really blend in with the locals. You're very, uh, you're very obviously a foreigner. Um, but a surprising number did manage to escape. We're standing outside the front of PB2, Pillbox 2. They're called pillboxes, I suppose, because they look a little bit like a pillbox, but they are basically large concrete defensive fortifications. Unlike the splinter-proof buildings, these are armed with medium machine guns, and what we're looking at now are two apertures, and these would be used for the Vickers machine gun, which would be on on a mounting and on a swivel, and then it could be rotated and fired from a semicircular swivel. When you look at the pillbox, you can see there's a frieze of stones, and that's part of the camouflage. And on the roof of the pillbox, you can see an array of rocks, and again, that's part of the camouflage. So um, 
Remember, there were no trees in 1941, just low vegetation. And you wouldn't see these pillboxes until you were almost, you know, up against them. And on top of what you see here, they would have had nets um, with, uh, you know, branches and twigs and things like that. The, the pillboxes usually had two, three or four um, machine gun apertures. Um, this particular pillbox is actually kind of facing the wrong direction because it's facing northwest. So their machine guns weren't really brought into action uh, because at dawn on Friday the 19th, the Japanese were below us on a, a walkway known as the Cecil's Ride, which leads from North Point to um, Wong Nai Chung Ga. Um, and as dawn broke, the next pillbox, just adjacent and up the hill a bit, they noticed hundreds of Japanese on Cecil's Ride. Hundreds of them all bunched up. And shortly after dawn, they opened fire with devastating effect. And the, the crew of this pillbox came up onto the roof of their PB and, and fired using their LMGs and rifles. They weren't LMGs? Light machine guns. And then at some stage, after the Japanese had captured the AA battery, which you know, we first got to, and, uh, and captured the police station at Wong Nai Chung Ga, they turned their attention on these troublesome pillboxes, in particular PB1 up the hill, which had caused such damage to their men and personnel. So we've just moved along the path a little bit. We've got ferns and other foliage. So this would have all been barren? It would have been low vegetation. In many places, difficult to walk through because it was thick vegetation, but low. Oh, so you um, wouldn't have had these pathways? The pathways were there. The, I think most of these pathways in Hong Kong are, are old. Um, in fact, you know, what I often do when I'm doing World War II research in Hong Kong is I get hold of 1945 aerial photographs and they show the paths. And many of the paths we use today were used then and were probably used long before that as well. But what's really interesting is some of the paths that we don't know about today show up in the aerial photographs. And then when you take those paths, you, you know, with, again, using a metal detector, you can find evidence that um, you know, these paths were used and used by the military. Well, we're walking along the same trail that Lieutenant Burkett and Sergeant Tom Marsh took with their platoon when they were ordered to the top of Jardine's Lookout during the early hours of Friday the 19th of December. Um, we're not going to go all the way up to Jardine's Lookout. We're going to stop and um, have a look at a Japanese tunnel, which is just about 25 metres away. It's interesting also when you mentioned about how you and some other metal detecting and World War II enthusiasts have found bullets what do you call the tags that people have uh, id tag yeah so with, the, with their names on and other paraphernalia like helmets in fact i mean apart from you know being able to discover these items you are reinforcing the history as you say by discovering those items on jardine's lookout you're supporting some of the historical accounts or sometimes finding out that they're not quite accurate yeah, correct. For me, it's, um, it's not really about collecting relics, it's about answering questions. So when you find a bullet, what we do is we, we clean up the head stamp with a wire brush, and then we can read the marking on the head stamp, and we can see whether it's British, Canadian, or Japanese. And when you find bullets on the battlefield, uh, spent bullets, it gives you an idea of who was where. It gives you an idea of where fighting occurred. And if you find British bullets, you know that the British were here. And when, where you find Japanese bullets, you know where the Japanese were. So it gives you an idea of the direction of fire, the positioning on the battlefield, 
And there have been times when I've been to places, to hills, which I've never seen talked about in any kind of war diary or, um, or history, um, where I found rounds, uh, spent rounds. So that tells me that fighting occurred in a spot where we didn't know about. So, you know, what I try and do is keep a record of finds like this, um, type of ammunition, um, and where found, because it helps kind of, like, tell the story of, the, of what happened in December 1941. Um, you find all kinds of things when you do this. It can be very dangerous because there's a lot of live grenades and live shells. When we find live rounds, um, we report it to the police and they usually detonate it very quickly. The very first thing I ever found with my metal detector, probably about four years ago, I got my dear wife to uh, bring out um, a metal detector from England so she carried it on the plane, managed to get through security. And at the next opportunity, I went out with the metal detector and I was on a place called Stone Hill, one of the perimeter hills behind Stanley, which were heavily fought over. And anyway, I got my beep, 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 and started digging. And not very far underground is a tube, a brass tube. I had no idea what it was, but... As I kind of checked with friends and, and researched, I found that it was an oiler for a 303 rifle. And it's a little tube of oil that fits into the butt of the rifle through uh, a little uh, opening in the, in the butt plate. And when I cleaned it up and undid the top, I found there was a spatula attached to the top. And inside, there was still 1941 oil. So kind of like when you find these things... It sort of really brings history to life. You know, when you pick up a Japanese bullet, which, for example, you know, has not been touched since the person who fired it 75 years ago in December 1941, and it makes you think of what kind of person was that person who last touched this round? Did he die? Did he survive? And apart from bullets and bombs and grenades, we also find lots of articles of uniform. Um, we find buttons, buckles... Um, we find bayonets, we find rifles, we find machine guns. So what do you do with all this stuff? Most of it's in pretty bad condition. Um, if, we, if it's kind of like buttons and things, we keep them, um, because I don't think a museum would be interested in a button. The group of people that go out metal detecting, there's only about six or seven of them, are trying to find somewhere where they can display the items they've found. But, you know, some of the items are badly rusted, like the rifles and machine guns. The wood has gone and they're very rusted, so they're not very pretty to look at. Um, the museums have got better things. The biggest things we've ever found are two aircraft um, on the hills behind Stanley. They were American aircraft, and they crashed on... Actually, the two we found crashed... They crashed into each other, uh, landed in different places, um, and they crashed on 16th January 1945 towards the end of the war. We also found at one of those crash sites a 2,000-pound bomb, which is the biggest um, shell casing we've ever found, and that was taken away by police um, explosives department uh, by helicopter. The most interesting thing we found was um, an ID tag, an ID bracelet, probably a wrist bracelet, with the name of Jay Siddons and his serial number, and it turned out that he was a, a wartime naval rating and finding something with a name on is like the dream of every metal detector or military history enthusiast.
you know, that's even more dramatic than picking up a bullet. You know, this, this is somebody's name. And given a name, what happened to him? You know, we found this um, ID tag um, near Parkview, very close to where we are now. What was the naval rating doing here? And what happened to him? Did he die? Normally, when you find an ID tag, it means they were killed. So we did some research, and again, I got people to help me. We, we were able to contact his family, and it transpired that he survived the battle. He was taken prisoner, and he survived the incarceration in prisoner of war camps. And then in 1942, he was put on board a Japanese freighter, the Lisbon Maru, um, to be transshipped to Japan to work in factories and coal mines and docks and so on. And he died when the ship was um, hit by a torpedo from an American submarine, not knowing that this ship was carrying British prisoners of war. He actually survived the sinking. He survived um, the period when he was in the water where they were being machine-gunned. Um, and then when the Japanese started picking up um, survivors, he was picked up by one of the escort vessels, but they weren't given any kind of attention. So he, they weren't given clothing, blankets... Um, food or water left on the upper deck. It's October, it's northern waters near Shanghai. So he died of exposure on the deck of the escort ship. He had no children. He was married. His wife remarried after the war. The family that we were able to contact were like sort of not direct family, but they sent me a photograph of this chap. His name was Jack Siddons. So he sent, they sent me photographs in his naval uniform and from what was an ID tag found in the hills became a person with a face, with a, with a family with a history um, and once again you know, bringing history to life We've just walked up um, from, there was, as you probably could hear in the background there's uh, quite a little brook running down a brook. <laughs> and what are we looking at here Philip? Um, uh, well this is a tunnel it's about um, five or six foot high it's probably about three foot wide. It's built into the rock. It's a Japanese tunnel. Um, there are many, many, many of these throughout Hong Kong. They're all over the place. Usually they kind of um, have different portals. so they might. Can we go inside? We can. The lo I went inside with one of my battlefield tour groups um, a few weeks ago and there were bats in there. Well, let's just go to the front bit. I won't go too far because it gets very dark. And the, and the bats. Oh, and the bats, are there? Oh, I can't see any bats just yet. <laughs> no, they're around the corner. Oh, are they? Oh, I'll just stay here. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very low. It's very low, um, quite claustrophobic. I don't really like going into tunnels because you sometimes find things in the tunnels. We've had porcupines running out of them before. And the bats, uh, there are bats in this particular tunnel where we are. We're inside the tunnel at the moment. And uh, the bats have, you know, when they're flying, they have, their wingspan is quite wide and they brush against you because there isn't enough room between your head and the roof. Nice. Um, and it's not a very nice feeling, so there's a sort of furry feeling about them. Um, <laughs> My thanks to Philip Cracknell, who runs a great blog showing his finds in the hills, plus the other stories coming out about the Second World War here in Hong Kong. Thanks also to David Bellis of Gruelo.com and Todd Harding for reading Tom Marsh's diary. For my first programme in the new year, I head next week along Queen's Road West to look at the lantern shops and how the streetscape is changing, the subject of a recent photography book. Thanks for listening, have a very happy new year and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. 
Hong Kong Heritage with Anna Marie. It's uh, just on 20 minutes before 7 o'clock. is built on understanding. This also applies when using stored value facilities for electronic payments. Look after your stored value facilities and passwords and adjust the security settings on your computer or mobile phone. Manage the value to be stored according to your payment needs and make sure you understand the terms and conditions, the fees and how personal data is handled. And be sure to check transaction records to identify any unauthorized transactions. Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk. And so now we begin our new reading, Words Without Music, by Philip Glass, the composer of symphonies, operas, and film scores. He begins by recalling his childhood in the 1940s Baltimore and his early musical influences. The reader tonight is Kerry Shale. If you go to New York City to study music, you'll end up like your Uncle Henry spending your life traveling from city to city and living in hotels. Well, that was my mother, Ida Glass. I was sitting with her at the kitchen table in my parents' house in Baltimore. Truth be told, I was rather looking forward to a life filled with music and travel. And as it turned out many decades later, my mother's description was completely accurate. Ida was not an ordinary mother. Born in 1905, you could argue that she was an early member of the feminist movement, though she would never have described herself that way. Her understanding of gender came through her own intelligence and the depth of her thinking. As she came to know the world, she was not content with the conventional role of the woman in America. The old German Küche Kirche Kinder, kitchen, church, children. Ida knew the value of education. And as a result, she was far more educated than anyone else in the family. From the time I was six, and my brother Marty and sister Sheppy were seven and eight, we were shipped off to summer camp for two full months while Ida took courses. Our dad, Ben, was left alone to look after his record store, General Radio, at 3 South Howard Street in downtown Baltimore. Our neighborhood was a Gentile one, Like many other secular Jewish households, there was no religious instruction in our home, though we might occasionally go to a relative's house at Passover. But every Sunday morning, my father would say, Come on, kid, we gotta go get some bagels. And we would drive down to East Baltimore to some of the old delis and buy bagels, sauerkraut, and pickles out of the barrel to bring home. My mother's brothers wanted us to go to Hebrew school, so Marty and I went a couple of days a week until we were 13. But instead of attending the classes, Marty and I spent most of those afternoons at a pool hall a block from the temple, playing until a quarter till six when it would be time to go home. My father, Ben, was born in 1906. 
His first job when he was in his late teens was working for the Pep Boys Automotive Company, going up into New England and opening up their stores. He became a self-taught mechanic and opened up his own auto repair shop. When they started putting radios in cars, the radios naturally began breaking, so he began fixing them too. After a while, he got tired of working on cars and just did radios. Then, as a sideline, he began selling records. Gradually, the records took over the shop. Eventually, there would be thirty feet of records deep into the store, and his little repair shop ended up being just a bench in the back. He didn't know which were the good records and which were the bad. Whatever the salesman gave him, he would buy. But he noticed that some records sold and some records didn't. So, as a businessman, he wanted to know why some of the records didn't sell. He would take them home and listen to them, thinking that if he could find out what was wrong with them, he wouldn't buy the bad ones any more. He would have dinner, and then sit in his armchair and listen to music until almost midnight. I would sneak part way down the stairs behind him, and sitting there, join him in listening. For me, those years were filled with the music of the great Schubert string quartets, the Opus Fifty Nine quartets of Beethoven, piano music of all kinds, and quite a lot of modern music as well, mainly Shostakovich and Bartok. The sounds of chamber music entered my heart, becoming my basic musical vocabulary. I thought simply that was how music was supposed to sound. That was my base. And quite a lot of everything else eventually became layered around it. Most of the musicians in the family were on my father's side. My cousin Sevilla studied classical music as a pianist, and there were other people who were in vaudeville. My father's grandmother, Frieda Glass, was Al Jolson's aunt. On my mother's side, they really didn't like musicians. To them, the fame of Al Jolson was no big deal. Sheppy, Marty, and I all began with music when we were quite young. Shep and Marty had weekly piano lessons from a piano teacher who traveled from home to home, giving children lessons. But I had chosen to study the flute. In fact, I really wanted both piano and flute lessons. However, the economy of our family could allow for only one lesson per child. Not to be deterred. I would sit quietly in the living room during my brother's piano lessons, and follow with absolute attention. The moment the teacher was out of the house, I would dash over to the piano, and play my brother's lesson. This upset Marty no end. He was convinced I was stealing his lessons. At the very least, I was pestering him by playing better. My mother was the librarian in my high school, and I would stay in the library after classes were over. I passed the time browsing through college catalogs. I dreamed of escaping Baltimore, and knew that my ticket out would be connected to a college. Eventually, I stumbled onto the University of Chicago catalog, and discovered to my delight that a high school diploma was not required, and one could be accepted by simply passing their entrance exam, offering a way to skip over the last two years of high school. And begin the exciting years of education that a big university could offer. My high school advisor thought taking the exam would be great practice. It never occurred to him that I might pass and be accepted as an early entrant to the school. As always, Ida didn't show a lot of emotion. It was there, but somewhat concealed. 
She herself graduated from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore at the age of 19. In fact, she was